are listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring, a podcast for manufacturing marketers brought to you by Cooler Partners. My name is Jeff White. Joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing, mate? I am uh, doing well. And as always, excited for today's conversation. Yeah. Uh, maybe even more so today. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, we have the uh, the Maypie Manufacturer Ed Summit coming up, and uh, we've got one of the um, premier speakers that are going to be part of that show with us today. And I, I'm really stoked um, to talk about this kind of future-looking uh, perspective. Yes, and uh, and it helps our show have a bit of Canadian content as well, uh, <laughs> oddly. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. So I believe our guest is a, is a native of Canada, but uh, not residing there anymore. Indeed. Beauty, eh? <laughs> Thank you. So you'll fit right in. <laughs> so joining us today is Rob Atkinson. Rob is the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, or ITIF. Uh, welcome to the Cooler Ring, Rob. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Well, Rob, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, and just an honor to have you on the show, frankly. And I, I, um, I, I think I, if I try to uh, give an introduction to your CV, um, <laughs> we may end up using up the entire 30-minute show. So I wonder if, if you could just give a, our listeners just a brief introduction for those who are not familiar with you. Sure. So I've been in D.C. since 89, various uh, uh places, but all focused on uh, technology policy. And since 2006, I've been, uh, I was the founder and I'm the president of a think tank called the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And we've been doing a lot of work on advanced manufacturing, smart manufacturing, a lot of work on China, what the future of U.S. or North American manufacturing is going to look like. Look, it's, uh, and, and of course, it's the U.S.-China relations that is the focus of your upcoming talk at, uh, at the Manufacturer Ed Summit. Um, uh, and so, so let's kind of just unpack that a, a bit. I mean, uh, you don't have to um, uh, look at the news for any more than uh, three seconds to understand that um, uh, the China-U.S. relationship is evolving rapidly and... Uh, uh, some might say deteriorating rapidly. I think sometimes we naively think that's all associated with one particular political dynamic, and it's bigger than that. I guess um, what what when you step back from it a bit, what what's the the, the I guess introduce our listeners to what's broadly at play in your view, and and how this is shaping up. Well, I think what's broadly at play is when we encouraged and allowed the, the China to join the WTO, the Global World Trade Organization, in the year 2000. Uh, we were thinking that they were going to be like us, essentially a pretty much of a you know free trading nation, rule of law. We trade for some things and we export some things, we import other things. We're good at some things and other countries are good at other things. And, and because China's so big and was growing, that this would have been great for us. That was really a fundamental mistake. I'm not blaming anybody. It was hard to know what really was going on there. But China is not a free trader. They're, they're what I would call a power trader. A very uh, important book written in 1941 by an economist, Alfred uh, Hirschman. And he was talking about a book called National Power and Trade. It was basically talking about Germany in the first 40 years of the 20th century. They didn't do trade the way America did trade. They did trade to get power. And they did it to get relative power. So they wanted to hurt their competitors through their trade policy and help them. And that's a lot of how we should be thinking about China right now. 
China is focused in some ways, and not every industry, obviously, but in some ways in a predatory manner to go after uh, advanced industries in North America. And uh, you know, we need to be aware of that. That's not to say we should decouple completely from China. That would be a huge mistake. But we've got to think up. We've got to think about it more more strategically and more carefully than we used to. We were pretty naive before. I mean, there's there's a lot to to go with there, but I guess it um, it, it it seems to me um, that if that's the reality of the situation, and we just can't simply um, decouple immediately, if you will, uh, what are we entering into? Is this a long protracted Cold War esque um, uh, relationship with uh, with China that you're envisioning? You know the problem with you know using historical terms is that they're you know they're, they're it's not a perfect analogy, but yeah, I think that's pretty much what's going to happen or what's already happening. Now the Cold War with the Soviet Union, we we were really not integrated with them very well economically. We sold them Pepsi and we sold them some wheat, a few other things, but there was no real integrate. We didn't produce uh, telephones in the in in Russia, you know, uh, uh, so. There's been much, much deeper integration uh, with the Chinese economy. Many, many North American firms are, are, they have supply chains coming out of China. They have production in China, or frankly, the Chinese are their customers. So we're not going to, in my view, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that, they're, that if the Chinese made some kind of very aggressive military actions, uh, that things could deteriorate pretty quickly. But, you know, absent that, I don't see us decoupling in, in a complete way. What I think is going to happen uh, is much more strategic decoupling. So depending upon the sector you're in as a manufacturer, uh, you might find yourself in a position where you can't get your supplies from China anymore or vice versa, or, or you can't produce in China anymore, or you can't sell to China anymore. But I don't think that's going to happen across the board. And most, most sectors are not all that sensitive, but certain sectors that are sensitive, if you will, like for example, you saw the decision today when, when we're recording this or the, over the weekend with regard to the uh, Trump administration, with regard to um, the Chinese semiconductor firm, uh, where they were going to uh, potentially block sales to, to this firm. So if you're in a sector like that, then there's a lot more sensitivity. And then the other component of that is also just the tariffs that the Trump administration put on on a fair amount of imports coming in from China. So if you're a if you're a producer over there or you're using Chinese suppliers, uh, you know, that's a risk to the business. And I don't see that potentially going away overnight. Uh, it's possible if, if certainly if Trump gets elected, I don't see those going away. And if Biden gets elected, it's certainly possible he would keep some of those. Some relationship will persist, um, uh, not a full decoupling, clearly. And, and it's happening whether it's Biden or, or Trump post-election in a political environment that is um, uh, likely to encourage more attentions, not fewer. Um, Does all of this add up to a scenario where um, uh, manufacturers, you mentioned this before, about they kind of could take, a, take the approach of being basically uh, a free trading organization operating within a free trading nation, uh, within free trade agreements or free trade posture, uh, I, I guess, um, are, are you envisioning that um, manufacturers and governments will be a little bit more closely connected uh, in the future than what we've experienced in the last decade? I do believe that uh, for two reasons. One is 
you know, 20, 10 years ago, yeah, at one point in the Bush administration, or the second Bush administration, the U.S. Commerce Department was actually going around the United States at conferences, holding conferences to encourage and educate U.S. manufacturers on how to offshore work to China. I mean, nobody knows this, but it was amazing at the time. It wasn't amazing at the time. It was sort of normal. Of course, you're going to move your production to China. That's what, you know, Boston Consulting Group was making all this money and all the other consulting firms moved to China. You do that again, you do that today, and, and there's, there's the risk of scrutiny is much, much higher. Having a lot of production in China raises the risk of scrutiny. Uh, you saw that play out with, um, uh, with Trump with regard to uh, a number of U.S. companies where they say, well, we want to move something to Mexico. And uh, Trump you know, pulls out the bully pulpit and, and, and says, no, you shouldn't, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shame you publicly. So U.S. manufacturers are, are going to be under more scrutiny in terms of where they source from, where they produce. I, I think that's inevitable, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China and, and, and places like Mexico. I, I think Europe, Canada, you know, it's not as big a deal. It's, it's not seen as a problem to be doing that because they're allies and they're high-wage nations. But the second point is also the U.S. is in the process of developing and putting in place a much more... Uh, sophisticated national industrial strategy. We've seen that in the Senate in the last few months where a big piece of legislation for the semiconductor industry was, was put in place, uh, a big uh, legislation called the, uh, the um, Endless Frontier Act for basically to focus on key technologies. Uh, Vice President Biden has proposed expanding these, uh, what we call Manufacturing USA Institutes. So I think regardless of who gets elected, but particularly if, if Vice President Biden gets elected, he's going to be more um, assertive in terms of a domestic manufacturing strategy. And I think manufacturers who want to have uh, be in the good graces of, of the public image as well as the administration, they're going to need to be thinking about playing along. They're going to need to be thinking about how can we be a responsible partner? You know, give you an example. If the administration says, we, we think it's really important for the U.S. to be involved in the machine tool industry, and we set up an institute, you know, companies in the U.S. who are machine tool builders or even potentially users will probably need to be engaged somehow. Uh, otherwise, they'll look like they don't care, like they're not patriotic, and, you know, what's the matter? They're just out for money. I'm not saying that's the case, but that's the perception. Manufacturing is undergoing a rapid transformation, and MAPI's annual leadership summit, Manufacture Ed Online, will be exploring the many issues faced by the industrial sector. Join us on October 21st from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern for this virtual summit. The Cooler Ring is proud to be a media partner again this year. Register now using the promo code COOLERING20 and save 20%. Just go to manufactureedsummit.com or follow the link on our podcast page. Hope to see you there. I mean, it's certainly the case that in in this highly uh, visible and social world that we all live in now, you know, perception is reality. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And truth is negotiable, I believe, is how that goes. But. <laughs> yeah, that is always the second half yeah. of that statement. Yeah. I do think it's interesting, too, how it means that, um, you know, uh, the government relations part of, um, of the marketing function in these manufacturing organizations may need to take a different angle yeah. um there's also seems to me that there's a there's a, a different texture to the reputational management challenge uh for 
um, folks that find themselves in, in, in corporate communications and in, in marketing roles and manufacturers, um, you know, in some ways, maybe they could almost get away with um, uh, ignoring that context yeah. before. But um, uh, Rob, as you so rightly said, the scrutiny is just going to be so much higher now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the old, the, you know, the old days, meaning a couple of years ago, you know, most companies that with, when they dealt, when they talked about, the, I mean, most companies, even mid-sized manufacturers have to have something around corporate social responsibility. They have to have some programs, they have to have some images, something. But a lot of that was really around things like maybe education or helping the local community or uh, making sure that you're make, taking uh, adequate steps to be uh, environmentally uh, sustainable. Those aren't going to go away. In fact, they may even step up, but I would add a new one uh, that has to be part of that. And that's, are you a patriotic manufacturer? Are you doing what you can to help make sure that the U.S. has a strong and uh, sustainable manufacturing base? I find that one. So just um, uh, going into that a little bit more, it, it seems to me um, like we, we on this show, we've interviewed an awful lot of very smart manufacturing marketers uh, from some of America's leading companies. And when you do that, you realize just how big of a disconnect there is between the political conversation around manufacturing and the reality around manufacturing. You know, this positioning in the political narrative of manufacturing being uh, blue-collar Joe lunch pails all in a line going into a factory when people recognize that the workforce of tomorrow in a factory setting is going to be vastly different. Uh, and... and you know, when we think about appealing in some ways to that same demographic uh, or, or political constituency, um, sometimes that patriotic nature of manufacturing, you know, just kind of comes down into the, the buy American raw rawness. Um, do you feel us, Rob, that we're going to be kind of moving, you know, past that kind of uh, superficial um, uh, characterization of it? Or am I just being hopeful? <laughs> Yeah, I think we're probably going to move more in that direction. I think, you know, look, I live in Washington. I've been here a long time. Most Washington policymakers, including members of Congress, they, they I think, have a somewhat up-to-date understanding of manufacturing. They understand that just some guy or gal uh, coming out of high school that doesn't know any math and has you know low levels of literacy is going to have a hard time in modern manufacturing. They know that. Um, and that's why there's a big push in Washington and will continue to be a big push to think about things like apprenticeship programs and better community college programs and maybe more kind of engineering and skills programs, even in high school. So I think that is, is in, is in uh, you know, m moving along well. I think the, the real challenge, though, is um, helping policymakers understand that there are things called global supply chains. And what you find is that a lot of policymakers think, well, you know, we should just make everything here. Why, why have any risks with our uh, PPE equipment or whatever we're worried about not having? We'll just, we'll just say that you have to have your supply chains here. And the reality is, sure, it's some marginal level. More of that could, is, is useful uh, and, and possible. But there are a lot of these companies that are sourcing from 40 different countries uh, and they can't source from the U.S. because we don't make it. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges to explain to policymakers that these supply chains are global. Now, 
I think the notion that we, we, we can and will be saying and probably should be saying you probably should be sourcing less from China, particularly particularly sensitive kinds of things that we need to be able to make. We can't be dependent upon China. I think that's really one of the core messages going forward over the next decade. Areas where we're super dependent on China, where we don't have a lot of other options, those are going to be completely uh, under a lot of scrutiny. But I think, um, sure, I mean, if we're sourcing from Europe or Brazil or Taiwan, people need, policymakers need to understand that, you know, oftentimes that's that's good for us and, and we shouldn't be trying to, you know, completely radically change it. Robert, are you seeing anyone who's doing this particularly well and kind of getting out ahead of the game and really, you know, um, showing others how to do this, decoupling some of their supply chain from China and, and presenting a good image that way? Uh, I, from my, uh, my, imp my impression is a lot of companies don't want to, they're doing this more on the QT. Like, like, for example, my understanding is that Apple has moved half of its, uh, ear, uh, what do you, what do you call it? Your earphone pods or AirPods. Yeah. I have some moving half of their AirPod production to Vietnam. And that's the part that'll source for the U.S. So, you know, if you buy an AirPod, it'll be made in Vietnam. If, you, if you're in Brazil and you buy an AirPod, it might still be made in China. So you see some companies doing that, a few companies saying that they're doing those kinds of things. Um, you know, there's a group in the U.S. called the Reshoring Institute. It's an interesting, interesting uh, institute that really looks at and documents American companies that have reshored production and puts out press releases and the like. And, you know, that, that tends to get pretty good press if you, can, if you can tell that story. Even if you can tell the story of, hey, we moved stuff from China, but it doesn't really make sense to bring it to the U.S. So we, we put it in Mexico. Um, that's a positive story. It's not as positive if you, as you put it in, in Toledo, but it's still a positive story because it's close to the U.S. I mean, for a pr producer to have pr something produced in, in Mexico and exported to Mecca, the U.S., we get 50 cents back on that because uh, of reciprocal trade. In China, we get 20 cents back. So just having more of the supply chains in Mexico is, is a bigger direct benefit to the U.S. It doesn't all have to come back to the U.S. What about um, for manufacturers who are, you know, located in the U.S. or Canada or um, vice versa that are looking to sell into China? Are they, do you think that they're going to continue to go down that path or are they going to look at, uh, I mean, surely if you're exporting to China, that's that's less of a risk uh, from a PR perspective than, than ordering and purchasing from China. Very much so. Um, you know, again, it depends on what you're selling. If you're selling something that gets end, ended up putting into a Chinese fighter jet, then there, you know, then, then there's a risk. But sure, if you're just selling, you know, widgets, generic widgets or consumer products to China, absolutely. In some ways, that's a plus because it's saying, hey, we're selling to them, and it's a lot better than them producing for themselves. It sort of takes something away from them, if you will. It adds something to us. So I think. The selling to China, generally, it should be a good story. Um, so I don't think, and I really don't think that's going to come under under a lot of risk, unless it's something that's much more of a sensitive product. Uh, if you're selling some kind of semiconductor to China, which even if it's used for commercial purposes, it might get swept up in this dual use restrictions that are there. But overall, I think selling to China is, is, a, well, is a good thing, and companies can use that to their advantage. Are you seeing a trend beyond the U.S. to other countries um, that have a significant trade relationship with China um, 
adopting a more um, focused industrial policy as they uh, to, to, to govern the relationship with that country? Uh, is this something that you feel is particularly acute for the U.S., or um, is it something that a number of other European countries are also struggling with, or are they further ahead? No, no, they're definitely not further ahead. We we are we are uh, at the at the uh, head of the phalanx, if you will. We're leading this. Um, but what's really important is four or five years ago, um, we would have been alone, and now we have certainly a number of other countries. And I would put Japan right at the top of that list. Uh, before Prime Minister Abe resigned, he was able to get through a very aggressive program for subsidies for companies, man, Japanese manufacturers to, you know, either move production, to basically move production out of China. If they moved it to Malaysia or Vietnam or Indonesia, they got some incentive. So actually they were paying companies to move stuff out of China, even if it didn't come back to Japan. And if they moved it back to Japan, they got a much, much bigger incentive. And a lot of companies actually took advantage of that. Uh, Japan is very, very concerned about Chinese economic and technology power. They're, and they're very much willing to work with us um, you know, places like Canada, uh, I, th I think Canada is willing to work with us, but Canada is a, I, I think, feels small and powerless. Uh, say that as a Canadian. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> There's a certain amount of understanding that goes into that. Like, yeah, no, we're big, but we're tiny, really. Yeah, 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 yeah we're tiny. But I think that I think uh, I, I just had a call with some members of Parliament of UK today, and 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 you had a initiative. Uh, their prime minister to create a, what's called a D10, a democracy 10. And I think it's a little bit stalled now, but the idea is, could we get 10 democratic countries? Australia would be an example, Canada, US, Japan, uh, really to work together and, and, and uh, push back against some of these practices. So absolutely, I think that's happening. You'll see more of that in continental Europe, the German Manufacturing Association, uh, BDI, I think it is, I'm gonna get that wrong came out with a big report last year for the first time saying, wait a minute, China really is playing unfairly and it's hurting German manufacturers, including what they call the Mittelstadt, the, the really powerful middle-sized companies that are doing quite well. So even the Germans are waking up to this and saying, maybe we need to change course a little bit. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, kind of topic area. And uh, I just I really thank you for, for sharing your experience and expertise with our listeners to just help understand it a bit more and see it in a bigger context. Uh, um, it, uh, it's certainly a, a big challenge ahead for, uh, for American manufacturers. And, uh, and I think you've helped uh, at least uh, illuminate some of that road. Great. My pleasure. Yeah. And I think if anybody wants to uh, check out your talk where you'll be, uh, you know, talking even more about the U S China relations and, and where this is going, uh, they can check you out at the manufacturedsummit.com and uh, register there to see it. Thanks again, Rob. Great. All right. My pleasure. Thanks guys. Take care now. Thanks for listening to the cooler ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff white. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.